All right. So as I said, um, this is all of you will come to love certain systems more than others for whatever reason, and this is one of my favorite systems. Uh, this is a cardiovascular system, especially the heart, is very impressive. Um, it's quite amazing what this, this thing can do. So we used to one time, at Aristotle's time, used to think it was actually the center of intelligence and maybe the center of the soul itself. So that's why, you know, if you think of Valentine's Day as a heart, when you fall in love with somebody, they talk about your heart, right? We used to think that this was the center of emotion, um, that it, it represented a lot of things. Uh, fetal heart begins to pump by day 22 and ends when you die. And here's what to think about. So your average is about 80 beats per minute, all right? A bit higher in the fetus, but think of day 22, right? 80 beats per minute. And if you take a 60-minute hour and a 24-hour day times 365 days in a year and an average age of 75, which is actually quite low, your heart has beat... 3,153,600,000 times, okay? Now, I'm going to give each of you a two-ounce weight and have you do three billion arm curls. What do you think would happen? Cramp, yeah. Uh, none of your biceps would be able to do that. Even if I gave you no weights and asked you to contract three billion times. Yeah, that's right, right? You couldn't do it. And so that's the amazing thing about this heart. Every, every millisecond of your existence from day 22, this thing's working. Because if it doesn't, what happens to you? You're dead. You require it, right? So it, it, it's very impressive. It's one of the reasons why I like this organ because it's just, it, it works so much. So what does it do? What does the heart do? Pump blood around the body. So it's mechanical. Okay, it's mechanical. It is a pump. In fact, if anybody here has any sort of uh, plumbing or mechanical background, the uh, modifications that have occurred in the heart with valves and so forth, it acts just like, even like the hand pump that you do to pump water out of the ground, right? You have a valve in there that allows water up and won't let water back down. So the same idea sort of happens in the heart. It's somewhat cone-shaped. It's the size of your own fist. So all of you make a fist, okay? Well, actually, before you make a fist, I want you to find your sternal notch, and I want you to go down to your sternal angle. Everybody knows what the sternal angle is? Okay. If you move lateral to that sternal angle, the rib that's attached there is the second rib. So I want you to think of where the second rib is, and I want you to count down two, which is the second rib, three, four, five. Okay? So you get an idea between the third, the second and the, and the um, right? Okay? Okay. So, now take your other, your fist and place it, or the fist on the same side, place the majority of that hand in that area with just part of it at your sternum and the majority of hand here. That's the, no, go this way. So, I want your hand kind of pointed at your left hip and your right shoulder in that kind of configuration. That represents your personal heart and where it is in your chest. That's where it is. But that come a little more center because a little bit of the heart does go to the right-hand side. So you need to come a little more to the center. Okay? So that's exactly where your heart lies. And that's exactly how big your heart isn't. It isn't. Well, it's pretty small. Think of your fist. Like, that's... that's not, well, you're a big guy. Yeah. 
but it, it's not right. It's not some big massive muscular thing. So it weighs between 250 and 350 grams. It is cone shaped, which means it has a wide part and a narrow part, right? The wide part is called the base, and it points to your right shoulder. The lower part, or the narrow part, is called the apex, and it points to your left pelvis. Okay? Apex to the right shoulder, or sorry, base to the right shoulder, apex to the left pelvis. It lies between the two lungs in a space known as the mediastinum from the second to the fifth intercostal space. You know that fifth rib you touched? Guess what else is there? Your heart's there, your diaphragm's there, and your stomach is right below it. Your stomach's not down here. Your stomach's way up here. So you think of that fifth rib, think of the diaphragm, and your stomach lies right there. It's quite high. Your diaphragm's that high. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize it. It goes down. It goes down. It goes down to the edge of of the of the left rib laterally, but its apex of its dome is at the fifth. Yeah, everybody always thinks everything's down here. Oh, my tummy hurts. No, it's not your stomach. It's your intestines. All right, quite high. Uh, two thirds of its mass lies to the left of the midline, with the apex deflected to the left. Therefore, the apex points to the left hip and the base is directed towards the right shoulder, and it lies immediately superior to your diaphragm. In fact, the apex of the heart actually does share some connective tissue with the superior surface of the diaphragm. So your heart does kind of move down when the diaphragm's contracting. What's that? Yeah. Um, so it does have coverings like all viscera. So we, it has a serous covering exactly the same as uh, when we talked about serous membranes earlier. Same as all the viscera within the abdominal wall. And the serous membrane is known as the pericardium. There is one modification to the heart. It has a third layer called the fibrous pericardium. So... If I take a heart, okay, so we have the base, we have the apex. Whenever I draw a heart, I always draw it in its configuration, and one thing we'll learn a little bit later on, the left ventricle is always larger than the right. Pretty good, eh? <laughs> I can put this here too. All right, so if we take a little microscopic look at the wall of this heart, okay, we have, uh, I shall do it in red just because it's the muscular wall. So we're going to find we have a muscular wall. We have a inner lining. We have a fibrous lining. And we have a serous membrane. So, there's a third covering to the heart, the fibrous pericardium, which is the most superficial. And it plays an important role. There's a law. You're going to start hearing about laws. It's called Starling's Law. Starling's Law states 
that the same amount of blood that goes into the heart is the same amount of blood that leaves the heart. So whatever the heart gets loaded with in terms of its amount of blood per chamber, when that chamber contracts and the blood leaves the heart, exactly the same amount will come out. Okay? But the problem is the heart expands and contracts. And I have to keep it under control because, again, structure governs function. If I keep putting pressure, because the blood's under pressure, right? You all measure it, correct? So what are you measuring the blood pressure? The pressure of blood in the system. That's exactly what you're measuring. So imagine, if you will, then, blood is under pressure. I'm talking the left side. The right side of the heart, by the time gets back, the right side of blood gets back, it's actually at zero pressure. But we're going to talk about the left side for now. Lots of pressure. How much pressure? Give me a number. No, the other one. 80. Okay? So when I, if the heart's not contracting and sitting there for that brief second that there's no contraction, the existing pressure in the blood in that left ventricular chamber is basically 80, okay? When the heart contracts and it squirts the blood out of the heart, that's when it achieves 120. So that's what you're measuring, okay? So if I put that kind of pressure in the heart, over time, what might happen to that heart? And what happens if I put pressure in a balloon? No, if it's a... It expands, Okay. So the fibrous pericardium, because the heart over all these billions of contractions, if it didn't, wasn't there, that heart over time would get larger and larger. In fact, <clears throat> when I took my cardiac course <clears throat> many years ago, we had a coroner come in. He had a bucket of human hearts that he had collected from all the autopsies he had done. And he showed us a heart that came out of an 85-year-old woman that was that big. She had chronic hypertension. And because of chronic hypertension and the vast amount of pressure that heart was under for many, many, many years, it became this sac, this really thin-walled, blubbery sac. Okay? So, yes? Slightly, they, their, their myocardial walls become thicker. So they hypertrophy. The heart doesn't get massively larger. The muscular wall gets thicker. Yeah, so yeah, so depending on if it's a cardiovascular, all the weight trainers, okay, guys who lift a lot of weights will get an inappropriate amount of thickness because of the kind of pressures they're creating when they're lifting big weights. So that kind of pressure, right, that intra-abdominal pressure forces a lot of pressure into the heart and the heart will react by producing a thicker. In fact, some of the big guys actually end up with cardiomyopathies. Their heart becomes so thick that it can't even function properly anymore. It doesn't beat as well. So there's a critical mass point where it gets too thick. No, you're a young guy. I mean, no, no, no. It's just, it's just an adaptation. So the fibrous pericardium then does, it helps anchor the heart to the area because it's kind of hanging in that mediastinum, right? There's no bone there it's hanging on to. It's kind of hanging in there. So it helps float there because if I were to put the diaphragm here, if I were to put the diaphragm here, and I'll use brown because that represents the fibrous pericardium, the fibrous pericardium actually does this. Okay? It actually attaches to that superior part of the diaphragm, kind of holds the heart in place. The other thing that's kind of cool is that if this is the front part of the heart, there's actually fascial attachments that come up and attach to the posterior aspects of the sternum. Kind of, again, holding the heart in place. Uh, the purple line, I'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so 
This serves to protect and help anchor the heart in the mediastinum and prevent overfilling, again, Starling's Law. I don't want to overfill the chambers, right? The serous portion is the parietal pericardium and the visceral pericardium. That, in the heart, is known as the epicardium, which is the black. The parietal is the one that's farthest away, and the visceral is the one that intimately attaches to the muscle wall of the heart. Okay? And what lies in between the two? Yeah, serous fluid. And what's serous fluid do? Serous fluid makes it slippery. Three billion times this heart's contracting. If you see a heart actually contract in an open chest, it's not this nice little do 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 do. This heart, it's doing a lot of stuff in there. It moves a lot when it contracts. So I want a nice slippery environment in there for it to contract in and move around. In fact, it works so well, none of you even know your heart's beating. Right? Until, of course, maybe the house gets quiet enough, it's the middle of the night, right? And you're lying in such a way and you have a chance to kind of hear it. What's that? Right, and they say, you know, some of the theories are that fetuses, um, actually, they love the sound of mummy's heart because their entire existence in that quiet, well, between the farting and the gurgling, digesting food and the heartbeat and all that kind of stuff, they get to hear it all because they're right in there, right? Um, so, the serous portion is the parietal pericardium and the visceral portion is obviously the visceral pericardium. The parietal layer lines the fibrous pericardium and the epicardium is intimate with the muscular wall of the heart. So, this attaches to that. So, this part of it attaches to the backside of the fibrous pericardium and this attaches to the outer surface of the myocardium of the heart itself. The space between the parietal and visceral layers is known as the pericardial cavity. That's an A-R-E. It is a, yeah. Now, this area can get inflamed in a condition called pericarditis. And pericarditis can result in one of two things. Firstly, the inflammation can dry this area up and there's no longer any serous fluid in there. What do you think it's going to feel like if it's dry every time you have a heartbeat? So these folks will come in thinking they're having a heart attack because they'll have chest pain that's somewhat consistent what it would be like to have a heart attack, right? These folks usually end up in ICU on fairly heavy-duty antibiotics to get rid of this so that it, it works well. The other thing that can happen is that in inflammation and sometimes with certain, um, certain um, uh, microbes that get in there, this area can overproduce serous fluid, okay? Remember, this heart is encased in a fibrous capsule. So what do you think is going to happen if that pericardial cavity fills up with too much fluid? I know you know the answer. It puts pressure on the heart to the point it can actually squeeze the heart to death. 
Okay, that is known as cardiac tamponade. All right, I've had the pleasure to twice be an assistant in a pericardial centesis. So these individuals have a massive amounts of fluid in this space, and the specialist will go in and um, they don't go through the middle of the chest like you see in the movies. Okay, they actually uh, freeze a little bit here and put a big needle and go up through the diaphragm into the base of the heart and draw the fluid out, and it takes the pressure off the heart. And, and the individuals usually survive. That is known as... Uh, good question. It really depends on the disease state and the cause for it. Sometimes it's an acute um, inflammatory kind of reaction, like a bacterial infection or something, and they hope that you know they drain it once and with antibiotics get rid of it. There can be other reasons for it that they may have to go and have open-heart surgery or goodness knows what, right? But, but that's known as cardiac tamponade. And the condition that can cause that is something called pericarditis, inflammation of the serous membranes outside the heart. So you see the picture here, same idea of what I've drawn. Here's your fibrous capsule here at the top. You've got the pericardial cavity here with the visceral layer of the serous pericardium and the epicardium and the parietal layer of the serous pericardium here. Maybe I should put that in, right? The epicardium, I have this in the wrong place. I apologize. This should go to... There. Then we have the myocardium here, which is the muscular wall, and then the endocardium there, which I'll be talking about in a moment. You'll see here that, oops, sorry, we have the nice space here, everything's fine. This is what happens when the pericardium gets inflamed, and as I say, it can do one of a couple of things, either dry up or end up producing too much fluid. Uh, so, that being said, we say then that the heart has three layers. It has the outermost epicardium, which is the visceral pericardium. Did I just confuse you there? The epicardium is the visceral serous layer, right? Uh, I know. It is the outermost layer, so maybe I'll draw this a little bit better. Okay, it's attached to it, right? It's attached to it. The inner myocardium, the middle myocardium, which is the muscular wall, and the inner endocardium, which is the purple. So, the epicardium is the visceral layer of the serous membrane. We've already talked a bit about that. We, we know that. The myocardium is the dense and thickest layer, which is composed of cardiac muscle. So in other words, this is the contractile part of the heart. This is where the contraction occurs. So, it's like any other muscle. It shortens under stimulation, which causes the heart to contract. Thus, because of its pump properties, it either moves heart blood through the heart or pumps blood out of the heart. Um, it differentiates from both, I should be both, not both, skeletal muscle and smooth muscle due to its specialized architecture, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. The specific fibers are tethered to each other by crisscrossing bands of connective tissue. Why might you think that that needs to happen? Sorry? Well, it's not a bad answer. We don't ever want them apart. So... 
stabilizing. What's missing in this muscle compared to all the skeletal muscle you've talked about? Attachments. Has the heart got a bony attachment? No. So if all of you guys are muscles contracting, you all need to kind of have something to hang on to, to shorten with. So all this crisscrossing connective tissue kind of helps you all work together in synctium, which we're going to talk about because all you guys are going to contract at the same time. It also allows you to contract because you've got something to kind of pull closer together to have the heart contract. The fibers are arranged in a spiral or circular configuration. Why do you think that is? Yes, correct. You all think the heart goes boom, boom. It doesn't. It goes boom, boom, twists. The top part contracts, the bottom part twists. What do you do with a dish rag if you want to get the water out of it? You wring it. The heart does exactly the same thing. It actually, when those ventricles contract, it actually wrings the blood out. It's the way it more effectively gets blood out of the chambers. Uh, there's a dense network of connective tissue known as the fibrous skeleton that reinforces the myocardium within and firmly anchors the contractive fibers. So we have two things that help anchor as far as that goes. The largest part of, the, um, of this connective tissue skeleton is here. And you will note that I put a space there. So... This dense network of connective tissue known as the fibroskeleton that reinforces the myocardium within and firmly anchors the contractile fibers. It also provides additional support to the greater vessels. So out of there, the great vessels, these big, big vessels come out of the heart and they need to be supported and hung on to. I wish I could really show you an actual heart, but um, you will see. I got a nice video here at the end. And then um, it also is a non-excitable tissue to prevent excessive spread of action potentials. So we know, kind of, sort of, without any lessons, we know that the top part contracts first and the bottom part contracts second, correct? Okay, so I've always said that muscles are stupid. So if I excite a muscle with an action potential, all of that muscle will con uh, contract, correct? Okay, so if I had the heart contract as one, how efficient would it be as a pump? Not very. So the reason why we want something that kind of briefly stops the action potential, because it does start on the top and go to the bottom, is so that there is a brief pause enough that the bottom, the top contracts first, and then as it's relaxing, the bottom will contract. And that brief pause makes the heart much more efficient at moving blood from the top part to the bottom part and then from the bottom part out. So it's deliberately done. And I will be talking a little bit more of that when I get to the conduction pathways of the heart here very shortly, maybe even after break. Um, the last layer is the endothelium or the endo, uh, endocardium, sorry. It is a sheet of endothelium, which is squamous epithelium, as we know, and which is attached to a layer of connective tissue of the basement membrane. So there is a basement membrane. I got a new color I could use. I guess I can use orange. There is a basement. Oh, wrong color. There's a basement membrane between this endocardium and the myocardium, which would make sense, right? Because it is epithelial tissue, and we do need a basement membrane in order to hold epithelial tissue or uh, epithelial tissue onto whatever it's attached to. Correct? Okay. See now you know why you need to know all that stuff. Everybody's like, "What are we taking all this crap for? Like, what's that got to do with anything?" Okay, now this endothelial layer, this endothelium is really cool because 
it is, um, I kind of call it Teflon. It's very, very slippery. I think I've told you guys before, a couple of things that blood really doesn't like is uh, getting jostled around and uh, it doesn't like stopping. So the endothelium or the, end, or the endocardium, being that it's slippery, allows blood to travel through the heart without currents. And it, it, it's quite fascinating if you think about it. Like anywhere else in the world, if you look at water traveling, do you always see currents? Always, right? Now imagine the blood in the body travels through you know, a myriad of channels and canals that split and, and, and divide and so on and so forth. And yet there are no currents because as soon as there's currents, blood coagulates. Why? Because of this layer. So this specialized epithelial layer is, is ultra slippery, slippery, very low friction, which allows blood to flow through quite freely. And I think I mentioned this class as well, that we can create a mechanical heart, no problem. I mean, piece of cake. You know, you're just moving blood from one channel to another and out you go. But because of this sensitivity of blood, most of these, um, most of these things that we create end up causing clots and, and they don't function well. So we see here we've got uh, we've got the uh, myocardium here, and then we have the endocardium, the inner lining here, and the epicardium, the outer layer here. This is a real human heart that's been sliced open. the The purple part here is is the myocardium itself. <laughs> In fact, if you want to go to any butcher shop and get a cow heart. If you want to have a look and practice, they're really cool. They're, they are cut open because they have to check them for heartworm before a cow is allowed to be used for human consumption. So unfortunately, they are kind of sliced open a little bit, but you can put them all back together. Again, when I worked in the butcher shop, I used to bring hearts in, and you could actually look at hearts. Now, if you really want a cool thing, if you go to Elmvale, butcher, uh, Elmvale Slaughterhouse and ask for it, they'll actually give you what's called a full pig flug, plug, which is the full heart, great vessels, and the lungs. And the tr all, all in one, you can take it home and dissect it on your own if you want to. Yeah. And where the heck do you dissect that? In your garage? No, in your kitchen. In your kitchen on the counter. Like it's it, it, it's pork. It's like not like like it sliced a piece of roast beef there. So why wouldn't you slice open a pig heart? Hey, honey, I'm home. And a pig heart's cool because <laughs> a pig heart is exactly the same size as ours. Yeah. Hey, hey, you could cook it up afterwards. Why not? Anybody here eat beef heart? Anybody here eating beef heart? Beef heart's good. Yeah, you had it? It's good, isn't it? Yeah. Street food, right? Yeah, street food on the barbecues? Yes. I want that's why I want to go that's why I want to go to Asia. I want to eat that stuff. Heart, liver. He probably won't tell you some of the other things that they cook on the street that's really good food, right? We're the only culture. We waste so much food. So many good things you could eat. In fact, they did a big batch of pigtails the other night. Mm. I made a big batch of pigtails, yeah. Anyways, myocardium is the purple. Someone has grabbed tissue on the outside, which represents the epicardium, and then they've grabbed the endocardium here. This is the whole inner chamber, and you'll know just how nice and shiny. You can almost see how slippery that, that endothelial lining is, right? Okay, that, it, that the blood goes through. Okay, let's take a break, and I'll talk about chambers. Oh, I could talk about this way more than uh, w way more than the other stuff. I worked in this for like half my life, right? So, oh, I have open. Oh, I didn't smell that bad. 